You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. Welcome to Oh No Lit Class, the podcast that regularly goes cruising with Robert Louis Stevenson. I'm Megan. I'm RJ. What? That, that, that's a shout out to <laughs> Oliver Buckton right there. If you're out there and you're listening, that one's for you. That one's for you. It'd be funny to like three other people. I guess. Uh, anyway, to update some of the show's polls here. Uh, okay, we're not even gonna get started. We're not even gonna do any preamble here, but fine. Update the show's polls. Who did a better Sean Connery? RJ, 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 or not RJ? A hundred percent say RJ. No, that's not it at all. You're telling the people lies. The, the poll was overwhelmingly not RJ, aka me. The aka RJ. No. Yeah. Look, if you're gonna hold a poll, the answer was C. If you're gonna hold a poll, at least be man enough to like support the results. The people have spoken. They were Russian bots. You gonna hold another Twitter poll for? Uh, I don't this trust episode? Twitter. Russia bots. Oh. There must be a more freedomy uh, way of doing polls. You mean one way that uh, you can manipulate the outcome more? Like poll spring or something. Is survey that, monkey do you want to do a survey monkey i already did or a go- what 100 percent, rj yeah okay one vote <laughs> the system works and one vote on one rj wins oh and also i was lucky enough to recently be on an episode of is this adulting with Stephen and Chris, and we talked about old women with brittle hips adhd tics weddings and the, the horrible new beverage that'll be on everybody's lips, Shepsy. Don't ask questions. You just go listen to Is This Adulting? It's also just an amazing show about, like, just mental health and, and also just being real funny. So this episode is brought to you by our patrons, who I, I normally do at the end, but I feel kind of bad about that because it always ends up sort of being a rush and we're sort of half delirious at that point anyway, but... That is Alex, Melina, Ariel, Chris of Play Comics Podcast, at Play Comics, Lucas, Ben, at KNSJM on Twitter, Janet, the Not Alone Podcast, at Not Alone Pod, Rob, at your UFO guy and also host of Our Strange Skies, and- And he is a former founding member of Matchbox 20. Sure. And- Rob Thomas. (laughs) You might remember him from things like Santana's- I'm sure he never gets tired of you making that joke. Smooth. He is supporting us. Anyway, you're, you're stepping He's all smooth. over Jen and Tanner. Thank you guys so much for helping to support us. And also, they're, they, they decide now what we do. They're in charge. Those, those names I just listed, they're at the steering wheel. And today, they've decided that we're going to be talking about Of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck. So what I want to say, what I think is very important to say right out the gate before we even get to anything, is if you look up pictures of young John Steinbeck, hot. he A, yes, hot, B, Paul Walker, 
very Paul Walker. Maybe like a little bit of Garrett Hedlund in the film uh, Mudbound in there. Most uh, would probably consider the height of his Steinbeck powers to be Grapes of Wrath, which I did also read, but I, I thought it was really long and kind of plotting, but that's another story for another Stars day. Stars Leonardo DiCaprio. No, that's, that's Wes eating Gilbert Grape. That is a different thing. Oh, uh, it's a different grape? Yeah, different grape. Not not as wrathful. Yeah, whatever. Um, I, I would say Of Mice and Men is maybe more widely assigned yes, than is. Of Mice and then Of Grapes of Wrath. But like after talking to listeners on Facebook and Twitter about their old reading list, it's kind of made me doubt everything. But I had to read it twice. So I, I read it in, I want to say, eighth grade and then again in ninth grade because... They, my teachers decided I really needed to absorb the content of this story about how sometimes one friend just got to cap another friend in the head. Wow, spoilers. <laughs> I think everybody knows at this point. I never got to sign this. What have you read? How did you not have to read Mice and Men, like, at least in middle school? I don't know. So Mice and Men is a, it's a short read, it's a novella, it's not even 200 pages but it's a big American literature, and it's also a big controversial thing. Um, basically, everyone either thinks you absolutely should read it, or you absolutely shouldn't, and we should ban it forever, and is frequently challenged on the grounds of uh, allegedly condoning racial slurs, promoting euthanasia, which, I mean, we'll get there, and this is my favorite one, being anti-business. Mm. <laughs> because as I'm sure you're going to tell us, Steinbeck... Was a dirty, dirty commie boy. Whoa. Spoilers. Anti-business. Anti-business. You gotta love business. Yeah. President business. Lord business. Business, business, business. Business, business, business. All right, now that we said that a, a dozen times. So he was not in the Lego movie? John Steinbeck? Yeah. He might have been. I mean, like, Superman was there, and Shaq, and Lando, and Dumbledore. It stands to reason he was there somewhere. Yeah, president business. Yeah. 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 As, as his want to do. So, um, why don't you tell us about his activities prior to fighting in the Lego film? John Ernst Steinbeck. Ernst? Ernst. Good, strong German name. Was brought into this world on February 27th, 1902, and he was taken out of it December 20th, 1968. He never got to enjoy that last Christmas or see man land on the face of the moon. A real American tragedy. Old Steiner Where was... Where was the joke in that? I don't I understand. Like, life is the joke, Meg. And that's for all of you three people who like Watchmen. <laughs> A lot of people like Watchmen. Nah, just three. Just three? Yeah, you, me, and one other person somewhere. Old Steiner was born in Salinas, California. We're going with Steiner, huh? Old Steiner. All right. Oh, you got a different idea? No, I usually just call them by their names. Old Johnny Cakes? <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> you should. Well, I think I should now. <laughs> I mean, my, I got Steiner all up in here, but... You do you. I could do old Johnny Cakes. Far be it for me to edit you. Old Johnny boy. I'm pretty did, sure that I did that before for somebody. Uh, John Dunn? He wasn't diddly done. No, he was not diddly. J-Dog? I'm pretty sure he was just Johnny, or Johnny Boy, or something. Well, see, I can't jo use Johnny, Johnny Rockets. Yeah, so... Why didn't you call him diddly done? That would have been so much better. Old diddly done. <laughs> No. I did Leo done. All right, Johnny Cake's there. Oh, boy. He was born in Salinas, California, which is also the hometown of Sammy Hagar and is known as the salad bowl of the world because so much pizza grows there, which is the number one salad ingredient in America. 
Okay, I need to know what part of that you made up. <laughs> oh, Sammy Hagar was born there. Yeah, okay, and that's the guy from Van Halen? No, I believe that would be Eddie Van Halen. There were more than one p- people in Van Halen. Let's see. The lead singer of Van Halen what didn't wasn't Eddie Van Halen. <laughs> yeah, Van Halen. <laughs> <laughs> You're not allowed to be in the band Van Halen unless your name is Van Halen. <laughs> so Sammy Hagar was born there. Great. And it's known as the salad bowl of the world. What does that mean? Because it's like the pizza things, the thing you made up. What the fuck well, does salad bowl of the world? To be fair, in America, in case people don't know, you know, our international listeners, in public schools in America, salad counts as a vegetable. Or excuse me. Sal- salad does, does count, count as a vegetable. vegetable. <laughs> However, the sad thing is we don't give out a lot of salad, so no. pizza counts as a vegetable. This is not a thing we're making up. Uh, well, it has tomato. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I believe it's a salad bowl of the world because a lot of agriculture happens there and they ship it out. Ah, okay. So it's known as the salad bowl of the world. Got it. Which to America means pizza. Yep. Anyway, Steiner's family, or Johnny Cakes if you wish, was part German, part English, and part Irish. His grandfather, Johann Adolf Grobensteinbeck, Jesus, brought the old family over and decided to shorten the name a bit as well as dumping the whole Adolf thing. A heady play in retrospect. Gonna lose that one. Steiner's dad was John Ernst Steinbeck. Like, literally the same name. Not even trying. Yet Steiner isn't even named Junior. We've, this, en- we've encountered this before. You should be used to it by uh, now. This is a laziness on a whole new level. You know, usually they'd be junior, senior, maybe change the spelling a bit. Wasn't Ernest Hemingway's dad Ernest? And his grandpa was Ernest and none of them were junior or the third or anything? I don't remember the middle name being the same. Okay. I thought this whole naming thing died in the 1800s with the Brits. Nope. Yeah, nope. <laughs> Leave it to the Americans to take it to a whole new level. Anyway, Daddy Beck was the county treasurer. <laughs> Daddy Beck. <laughs> Steiner's mom, Olive Hamilton Steinbeck, was a school teacher who became a stay-at-home mom. It was his mom and her love of reading that helped turn Steiner into a voracious reader himself. So, as you might have gathered earlier, Salinas being known as the salad bowl of the world and our following conversation. Yeah, that thing that just happened five minutes ago. Not it even. was <laughs> quite literally a very fertile place. When Steiner was born in the early 1900s, it was still very reminiscent of a frontier town. It was not very developed and was just really a collection of ranches. Steiner spent a good chunk of his childhood farming and working ranches alongside migrant workers. During this time, he got to know all about the struggles and hardships migrants faced in trying to make a living in 20th century America. The things he saw and learned during his childhood would help him in creating his stories later in life. Steiner became very adept at farming and took a liking to nature. He would spend a lot of time in local forest fields and on other farms. This gave him time to contemplate and hone his writing when he took time to settle in. Life moved at a nice leisurely pace for old Johnny Cakes. His formal education was a mixture of learning from his mom, the former school teacher, and public schools. He graduated from a local high school at age 18 and went to Stanford to study English literature. He spent six years at Stanford before leaving without a degree. One of those guys who just goes to college to hang out, do it Van Wilder style. I don't know Van Wilder, he's just going out to nature every week, just walking around having nature walks. Hippie Van Wilder, I don't know. Probably better. So it was 1925. He took a swing at school and failed. He was 24. So what was he to do? Where was he to go? Go to New York? 
Well, go to New York. If you listen to Ono oh Lit Class on a regular basis, did he go to New York? You should know. <laughs> he went to. Let's say it together. New, New York. Jersey. Oh, what? I know. New York City. <laughs> While in the Big Apple, which maybe reminded him his home, you know, coming from the Salad Bowl and now going to the Big Apple. Yeah, you know, in fact, it probably pales in comparison to the world Salad Bowl because it's just an apple. Mm-hmm. He was in a whole bowl. It's true. I'm surprised he even heard of that place. <laughs> what? Just one apple? Exactly. New York. God, what kind of bullshit one horse town is this? I know. Going from Salinas <laughs> to New York. Anyway, while in the Big Apple hole, Johnny Cakes took up odd jobs to help finance his writing. He did this for a few years, slinging this, trying to sell that, etc., etc. And, well, much like the whole Stanford thing, he failed again. He couldn't make it there, which means he might not be able to make it anywhere. Oh, no. So he returned home to the land of the Salad Bowls. He landed a job as a tour guide and caretaker at Lake Tahoe. It was during this time he met Carol Henning. A fine little lady who had a thing for boys from Saladville. How much mileage do you get out of this salad thing? I don't know. He lived there his whole life. He just really had to think of salads. I guess so. And smoking. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, she had a thing for uh, guys from Saladville. And so eventually they got married. In particular, they got married in 1930 when old Steiner was 29. Now, being a tour guide was probably not a good career for a man who was trying to make a go with a fine young lass and start a family. So Steiner took up a new profession. He broke into the plaster mannequin manufacturing business. Mm, I heard that's a a hyper-competitive field. Hey, someone's got to do it. Turns out, though, cutting it as a plaster mannequin manufacturer is tougher than it sounds. Say that three times fast. And it turned out to be another failed venture for old Johnny Cakes. Bummer. Him and his wife had to move back to the old salad bowl. (laughs) And they lived in a house paid for by his parents. His parents also gave him allowance. Oh, no. And hell, they even paid for the paper he used to write his manuscripts. Dude. He was 30 years old. Of course he was. So when people complain about millennials leeching off their parents, you can say, you're pulling the old Steinbeck. Uh, It's a great American tradition. I'm going to be a great American author. And my dad doesn't pay my rent. (laughs) And this brings us to this week's edition of Parenting with RJ, a crossover of Financing with RJ, starring me, RJ. Shocker. Look, parents, you made some crotch fruit. You want to be fiscally responsible. I feel like we've done this one. (laughs) And you likely want to represent a pillar of financial responsibility to all your little fruit salads. (laughs) And I get letting kids live with you. And hell, paying them an allowance. But look, if you're paying for their printer paper on top of their rent and allowance, that is just a goddamn step too far. (laughs) You gotta draw the line somewhere. You wanna raise a kid or a dependent for life? Sometimes you gotta look in the mirror. You gotta look at your reflection in that bowl. That salad bowl? That salad bowl. Go, am I a man or am I a salad? Or a salad of a man? As for all you millennials out there, I feel you whippersnappers. All your student loans. You are a millennial. The crippling debt. The wage stagnation. The soaring price of dabbing and whatever hip and cool thing all you cats are doing these days. But buy your own damn printer paper. (laughs) Remember, 
one of RJ's tenets to financial freedom. Buying your own printer paper. <laughs> love yourself. Love others. But most importantly, love the feeling of money, a.k.a. paper, a.k.a. scratch, a.k.a. cheese, a.k.a. cheddar, a.k.a. the Benjamins, in your pocket. This week's Parenting with RJ, a crossover of Financing with RJ, is brought to you by Xerox. We make copies of paper today and people tomorrow. Xerox, the cloning people. <laughs> That's the copy they gave me. What can I say? I, if they gave it to you, yeah, you just got to read what they gave you. I see a bright future for Xerox. Look, they're in the business of making copies. Is there really that big of a difference between a paper and a person? I, I don't know. I mean, considering how genetically close we are to a banana, probably not that much. Well, people put bananas in them all the time. What? You ever freeze a banana and use it? What, in in your butt? Well, you got more options than me. It's true, I do. If you're just not <laughs> dedicated enough, is your problem. So, yeah, right up the urethra. Yep. You got to start off with a small banana. <laughs> Work your way up. You know, those old baby bananas. Yeah. So, back to the 30-year-old Steinian wife. They were taking money from his parents. They were on welfare. They were living off the sea, basically eating whatever Steiner could catch, which was fish and crab, or whatever they can grow in their garden. You know, vegetables and salad stuff. And when they uh, were unable to fish, grow, use the welfare efficiently, or the allowance, they literally stole bacon Oh, from the local market. Oh, come on. Yeah, they were bacon robbers. Bacon thieves. Not only is that morally repugnant. Repug- Repugnant's a bit of an intense word. It's not like they were lighting people on fire. Not only is it morally repugnant, it's also not kosher or halal in this holy month of Ramadan. Okay. I, I don't think that Steinbeck was a practicing Muslim, but that is very oh, he better not aware have been. of you. <laughs> not halal. <laughs> so basically Steiner and his wife were literally the worst. Yeah. Yeah. We, we we've covered some some pretty like great writers but very bad people on this show. But Steinbeck was a bacon thief, so he's <laughs> the worst. The worst. Lucky for Steiner, he found a mentor in life. A guy by the name of Ed Ricketts. Ed was a scientist who also dabbled in philosophy. Ed's outlook on things was basically that man was but a small part in the complicated web we call life. Anyway, Ed did the Steinbecks a solid. He hired Steiner's wife to work at his lab, and he helped Steiner to find his voice. Also, when Steiner got upset, which apparently happened quite a bit, Ed would play music for Steiner, which apparently calmed him down. You know, like the child he was. <laughs> you know, I just like the image of a 30-something-year-old man upset. <laughs> can, you, can, can you play some music for me? Tell me about the rabbits, Ed. It was during this time in the early and mid-1930s that Steiner started to see literary success. A lot of his writing focused on the North American Southwest, places like California and Mexico, places he knew and had been to. A lot of his characters were also portrayed as victims dealing with or attempting to overcome the Great Depression, which he certainly felt himself. Politically, this did not play well with a lot of people. In particular, business owners and those well-to-do did not like Steiner's pro-New Deal stance, and they argued that he was misrepresenting the Depression and making things seem worse than they really were in a way to garner support and sympathy. Are you fucking serious? Yeah, people are like, oh, it's not that bad. 
You're making it seem way worse, guy. Way to milk it. Way way to milk that whole starvation, you know, fucking dust bullshit. God, you you big baby. I'm sure it's not that bad. I'm sure kids aren't, like, dying. And, oh, my God, I hate capitalism. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps that you don't have. See, I was just going to say, you can't afford to buy the bootstraps. Well, if you're smart. You pull your money together with your ten neighbors, and you get one pair of bootstraps, and y'all, you take turns. Y'all hang from it. And you all take turns pulling each other up. You take those bootstraps, you tie them into a noose, and you hang yourself, because that's the only way you're going to get up in this world. This led to a number of school boards attempting to keep some of Steinbeck's work out of the classroom. You know, too politically charged, that depression and all. Mm. Now... Like most of the authors from this period that we have covered here on Ono the Class, World War II played a pretty big role in Steiner's life. He became a war correspondent and went over to the Mediterranean to cover the Italian front. In particular, Steiner fell in with Douglas Fairbanks' regiment. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we mentioned that guy before. (laughs) We did. (laughs) And even though he was there officially as a war correspondent, there was at least one time Steiner used a Tommy gun to mow down some German-Italian troops. Baller. Yeah. That's yeah, that's gun noise. Unsurprisingly, after the war, Steiner returned stateside, physically and mentally injured. That's what war does to you. He worked through his issues by writing. Specifically, he wrote some screenplays for directors like Alfred Hitchcock. That's cool. In the mid-1940s, Steiner began to take trips to the Soviet Union to catalog what was going on over there. Eventually, these frequent trips would get him noticed by none other than the feds. I guess when you are one of the first and most frequent visitors to places like Moscow and Kiev and Stalingrad at the start of the Cold War, well, that's going to raise some eyebrows. Especially those of our old pal, J. Edgar Hoover. Oh, Leo, yeah. No one's going to get that. What do you mean? He started a movie. Leonardo DiCaprio is like the most well-known actor. I guess. All revenue. That movie was very bad, though. <laughs> well, that's a different issue. And then, as if to seal the deal, Steinbeck wrote books that praised... But more importantly, criticized America and what he saw was going on in the country as he took a series of road trips. We know in retrospect this criticism was unwarranted as America was already great then. Or something. <laughs> or so I'm told. Oh man, so that's, yeah, that was the the, the, tra- the Travels with Charlie era. Yeah. That I love. If I had to pick like a favorite Steinbeck book, it would actually be the nonfiction book, which was Travels with Charlie, where he did these road trips with his dog, who was just this giant, like, manly poodle. And it's, it's like, he's funny. Like, it's funny, it's kind of sweet, and it's kind of sad because he really loves America, but he also knows America's kind of shitty. <laughs> yeah, so when he took the cross-country American road trip, he did so because he thought he was dying. It was 1960, and he was 58 years old, and he wanted to see the country one last time. Truth be told, he would live for another eight years. The novel that came of the road trip was The Winter of Our Discontent, which examines the moral decline in the United States. It was not critically praised. In fact, a lot of people were upset it was not another Grapes of Wrath. However, it still won him a Nobel Prize. Perhaps it was more of a career award at that point. Either way, critics were aghast that he won the Nobel for that novel and were very vocal about their anger. Some called it the worst decision in the history of the Academy ever. People need to chill. Apparently, the criticism got to Steinbeck. Not only did Steinbeck never publish any fiction again. Oh, my gosh. But when asked if he deserved the Nobel, he said, quote, frankly, no. Turns out Steinbeck and the critics may have had a point. 
Fifty years after the Nobel was awarded to him, the Academy released its notes from the 1962 decision process. And the members at the time seemingly chose Steinbeck as a kind of compromise candidate, referring to the year as a, quote, bad lot. And him just kind of being the one with the biggest name recognition. Throughout his life, uh, Steinbeck remained politically active. He collaborated with many leftist authors and labor unions. He was a member of the League of American Writers, which was a communist organization. Steinbeck also signed a letter along with other writers that argued in favor of the Soviets invading Finland and establishing a puppet government there. Steinbeck was also a close associate of Arthur Miller. You may remember he's the Ono Le Class alum who faced the House Un-American Activities Committee and married the fuck and fuck the fuck. And fuck, and, and fuck right. <laughs> I gotta get this on. Fuck, fuck, fuck. And married the fuck and fuck the fuck out of one Marilyn Monroe. And then he also, you know, wrote that play about those Puritans who just wander in and out of each other's houses for some reason. Anyway, Steinbeck, going against public tide and risking his own career, publicly supported Miller when Miller refused to name names to the committee. Steinbeck called the Times one of the, quote, strangest and most frightening times the government and people have ever faced. God, imagine if he'd hung in a bit longer. <laughs> Steinbeck did lose some of that sweet, sweet leftist hipster street cred when he went over to Vietnam in 1967 to write about the war. And instead of denouncing the war effort, as many people expected him to do, he actually offered up a sympathetic portrayal of the U.S. Army and the men fighting overseas. The New York Post in particular called him a fraud and a sellout. Biographers argue, however, that it was probably less of his selling out and more of him being friends with LBJ, who may have helped frame the war effort in Steinbeck's mind a bit differently, and the fact Steinbeck had a son fighting in the war, mm. so he was likely also mindful of his words for that reason. Anyway, one example of Steinbeck being pro-America did not save him from some people really doubting his loyalty to the country. Ugh. In particular, the FBI kept close watch on Steinbeck. Because they had nothing better to do with their time and money and... <laughs> In short, they kept the file on him. Then again, really, who didn't the FBI have a file on at the time? Did they have anything that they were supposed to have been doing apart old, from fucking around? Old J. Edgar Hoover. Well, he had to convince MLK to commit suicide or try. Old J. Edgar Hoover, he wanted to know what everyone was up to. At the time, Steinbeck wrote to his connections in Washington, quote, Do you suppose you could ask Edgar's boys to stop stepping on my heels? They think I'm an enemy alien. It's getting rather tiresome. <laughs> At the time, the FBI denied any investigation. Oh, of course. After snooping around Steinbeck's life and not really finding anything to prosecute him on, J. Edgar Hoover used his powers to encourage the IRS to audit Steinbeck's taxes every single year. Ugh, such a petty fuck. Yeah, that's normal. Hoover's notes, which were released after his death, reveal he just did this to annoy Steinbeck. Yeah, that sounds about right. That sounds like what we know of J. Edgar Hoover. The small irony in all of this is that whenever he traveled through Europe, Steinbeck would reach out to the CIA director, Walter Bendel Smith, to offer any help he could while on his travels. It's unclear if the CIA ever took Steinbeck up on the offer, but we do have notes that an offer by Steinbeck was made and the CIA director was intrigued by the idea. So poor guy just wanted to help his country and instead was stamped as an enemy of the state. So it goes. Anyway, after the whole Nobel Prize debacle, Steinbeck lived a quiet life. Not really a recluse, but his public life was more or less over. 
Steinbeck died in New York on December 20th, 1968 of heart disease. An autopsy performed after his death revealed all his main arteries were completely clogged. As a lifelong smoker, that probably didn't help matters. Probably not. That's a lot of arteries also to yeah. be completely all clogged. Of them. All of them. All of them. Every. <laughs> oh, he didn't die in the salad bowl. He did not die in the salad bowl. He died merely in the Big Apple. The end. So, of mice and men, snow grapes wrath. Snow now is the winter of our discount tent. Do you know what this book was originally going to be called? No, and I would love to hear it. Yeah, I want to make sure I get it. So right. yeah, I mean, the, the title comes from the the line, "All the best laid uh, plans of mice and men." Something, something thrown asunder, astray, something to that effect. You know, you can plan as much as you want. God go fuck you up. And also, there are men in the story and mice too. Do you actually want the line? Yeah, sure. But mouse, you are not alone. Improving foresight may be vain. The best laid schemes of mice and men go often askew. And leave us nothing but grief and pain for promised joy. Chipper. I just want everyone to tuck away in the back of their mind that Steinbeck originally titled this book, Something That Happened. You fucking kidding me. No. Something That Happened. Something That Happened. I'm going to write a book and it's going to be called Here's a Thing, I Guess. Well, he had a reason for it and everything. Oh? Well, then no one could really be blamed. It was just something that happened. Yeah. I mean, we could blame it's, the. It's the nobody's cats. fault. <laughs> it's just something that happened. But after De- debatable. But then he just happened to read Robert Burns's poem to a mouse and went, "Ooh, even better." <laughs> this is way better than my bad title. Well, I guess um, let's we'll talk about the book, and you could decide for yourself if this was just something that happened. Uh, of Mice and Men, as it is m- moused. The time? The 30s, a.k.a. the Great Depression. The place? California. The dudes? Two migrant farmers. George, who is small and smart, and Lenny, who is big and... not. We're told that Lenny is mentally disabled, but we're never given any more details on it than that. They're on the run from their last job in Weed. <laughs> weed, California. Low-hanging fruit. What's not funny is what they're on the run for. Lenny has been accused of attempting to rape a woman because he wouldn't stop petting her dress because her dress was really soft, and Lenny really likes soft things. Like, a lot. And Lenny is a big, strong dude, so when he pets, he fucking pets. And it's not great. Oh, Anastasia has a comment. <laughs> no. We are not going to do that. This is the crossover fan fiction that precisely no one wants (laughs) so george is already pissed to kind of be in this position where they're on the run from a perfectly good job that they had in a time when you know jobs are a hard thing to come by and then he notices that lenny is stroking something in his pocket sunshine got sunshine (laughs) in his pocket (laughs) or maybe it's a stick i mean i left that open for you i didn't think you were i didn't know you were gonna go justin timberlake first lenny could also be gorillas oh yeah no, he's got sunshine in a bag in the gorilla song. Uh, hey, that's sunshine yeah. in, in a, a bag. bag. Yeah, okay, fine. Told you. Oh, pockets like a bag. It's a bag of your pants. A pockets like a bag. RJ, 2018. Billy, put it on the ball. <laughs> Our pockets like bags for your pants. Guillermo, make a joke that no one's going to get. That's all I'll get it. 
Oye! <laughs> Listen to the RJ Megan Show. <laughs> East Shore Guy, RJ. <laughs> yeah, that's me. Yeah. No, nobody's gonna fucking get that. Uh, so anyway, Lenny reluctantly admits that the thing in his pocket is a dead mouse, though he's quick to tell George that, like, no, it's okay, the mouse was dead when I found it, I swear. And George is like, that's... That's not the issue, man. That's not the problem here. Take the fucking mouse carcass out of your pocket, you dingus. And then he rails at Lenny for being such a burden and the worst, and that if George didn't have to deal with Lenny, he would get a steady job and get drunk and bang prostitutes all the time. No, but really, that's that's apparently the end-all be-all for George. But it would be so easy for him to ditch Lenny, realistically. But he doesn't, so we know there's got to be some reason that he stays with him, despite the, the yelling. And heavy petting. <laughs> he's big and strong. <laughs> he is. He's a big, strong boy. That's, um, that's okay. Anyway, Lenny gets pretty upset, and George tries to cheer him up by telling him about the farm they're going to buy, and we get that oft-parodied line from Lenny where he's like, tell me about the rabbits, George. And honestly, like, I get that it's supposed to be a sweet thing. Like, it's their, it's their dream. It's their hope that one day they'll own a little bit of their own land, and they'll have a place where they can, like, actually live, because they're homeless. They don't live anywhere. They just travel from farm to farm and work. So that part of it, you know, is very emotionally affecting. But also it's kind of messed up that he's like, yes, you'll have a whole bunch of rabbits that you can murder with your death pets. In fact, George is even like, look, I know you're sad about the mouse, but when we get to this new place, we'll get you a puppy. Yeah, a puppy. And you'll probably be able to pet one of those without snapping its fucking neck. Just before they arrive at the new ranch they'll be working at, George and Lenny are at this spot by a river, and George is like, if anything bad happens, by which I mean if you do something bad, meet me here, and we'll run for it or whatever. I'm sure this spot will never come up again in any significant way during the course of this narrative. So they make it to the new ranch, and they head to the bunkhouse, and they meet a super old dude named Candy, which is a, a weird name for a withered old ranch hand. He's not John Candy, he's just Candy. You boys. Wanna go on a bobsled? What the fuck? Come on over here, boy. What the? What happened to John Candy? I got some salad for Why is he you. gonna molest them in his van? The man's named Candy. <laughs> well, he's the Candy Man. This this Candy is candy man is can. a, stop. This is a withered old ranch hand, and speaking of hands, he's only got one of those, along with an ancient stinky dog. Steinbeck repeatedly references that Candy's dog smells very bad. Like, for whatever reason, it's really important to him that we understand just how bad this dog stinks. It's just a, just a really bad-smelling dog. He thinks it's very thematically important. Anyway, they talk with this old man and his smelly dog. They lie about having to run away from weed, and then the ranch boss is... Gotta run away from that 420, yeah. <laughs> The ranch boss's son comes in, and he's a jumped-up little shit named Curly, who's super insecure about what I can only assume is just the tiniest penis. And he compensates by, like, puffing himself out and trying to fight everyone and being like, Hey, you looking at my wife, asshole? You, you checking out my wife? Do you look at any space adjacent to my wife? I'll fucking kill you! Also, there's Curly's wife, who, of course, doesn't have a fucking name, because what need do women in literature have of names? Her identity is defined by being owned by Curly obviously love it except she flirts like crazy with all of the ranch hands which just makes curly even more of an aggressive little bastard anyway curly tries to size up lenny and george but candy's like you wear a glove filled with vaseline to keep your hands soft for your wife fuck off you weird little man just one glove by the way because i guess he only needs one soft hand 
just a weird character detail. Like, it's a glove filled with Vaseline. Yeah. Gotta keep this hand soft for he my does. wife. It's really or maybe one stroke himself. He's lubed and ready to go. <laughs> He's just ready at a moment's notice. Or if he comes across a cow that needs a good old fisting. I'm gonna punch you with my lube glove. Right in the anus. Yep. Curly's wife now enters the bunkhouse claiming to be looking for Curly, which, like, how how did she not pass him on the way in? Anyway, she does some flirty bullshit, and Lenny's like, she has soft-looking hair. And George is just like, no, no, Lenny, like, this is literally what got you in trouble last time. Don't, don't, don't you do it. And then we meet yet another character named Slim, who's the big dick on the ranch. His dog, who presumably does not stink, just had a litter of puppies, and Lenny almost creams his jeans when he hears this, already anticipating petting the ever-loving fuck out of them. Oh, and then, uh, right before the scene ends, Curly pops in again to look for his wife. Like, dude, you guys are literally just walking back and forth through the same fucking doorway. Why are you having such a hard time keeping track of each other? The radar don't work. Something's wrong. They haven't had enough carrots. It was dark. Ah. Can't see at night. Either way, George goes off with Slim, and Slim asks why George keeps Lenny around, and the answer pretty much amounts to, we have a deeply codependent relationship, and enable each other in various unhealthy ways. Neat. It's like you and that cat. <laughs> I'm, I'm not touching that one. You're Lenny. Of course. In He's the, George. In the meantime, everyone really wants Candy to put his smelly, smelly dog out of its misery. And Candy doesn't want to, because it's his fucking dog, and he loves it. But Slim says, hey... If I was old and crippled and smelly, I'd want to be shot too. And because Steinbeck has some heavy-handed metaphors to sling, the dog is shot dead in a mercy killing. You know, murdered. For its own good. Don't read into it. Old yellow. He got got. (laughs) He got got. Then they all talk about how Curly's wife is both hot and dangerous and definitely doesn't possess any other personality traits. A dude named Wit is all like, you know what girls are hot and not dangerous? Hookers. We should go see some hookers. It's only $2.50. And George is like, I don't know. That's kind of a lot of money. And so in like what? Like a a 20-year period just about? The price of prostitutes doubles, I guess, because you'll remember Holden paid $5 for his prostitute. Anyway, before George can go get his rocks off, Curly walks in. Three guesses what he's doing there. Using that Vaseline hand. No. No, he doesn't. Yeah, he walks into the bunkhouse masturbating with his Vaseline hand like, hey guys, what's up? Yeah, my dick. (laughs) (laughs) No, he's looking for his fucking wife again. Because their marriage is just one stupid game of hide and seek. (laughs) Gotta keep it fresh. (laughs) He thinks Slim is fucking his wife because Slim is hot and, you know, just like a cool dude. And because of this, he picks a fight with Lenny. Yeah, so the big sexy ranch hand is, like, a little too scary, so let's try to beat up the developmentally disabled guy. Yeah, we can pick on him, except joke's on Curly, because Lenny straight up crushes his fucking hand. Like, just to a a, a fine, fleshy pulp. Yeah. Uh, Slim goes... He thought it was a puppy. (laughs) This hand is so soft. (laughs) Reminds me of puppies and Ah. rabbits. Yeah, how do you think he masturbates? You know, did you think <laughs> one day was just the last time? It was the final day. And like, oops, just like a tube of toothpaste. Oh God! Oh, <laughs> I broke my dick. 
Thank you. Yes. Jesus Christ, where were we? Slim goes to take Curly to the doctor, and he says, you're going to tell everybody you got it crushed in a machine, and if you try to get Lenny fired, um, I'll tell everybody that you got your precious soft boy hand crushed by a large man-child. And Lenny's freaked out. Like, he thinks he's going to be in trouble because he just did, he's like, oh my God, George, did I, like, do a bad thing? And George is like, nah, man, that was dope as hell because he thinks Curly's a dick, which, yeah, that doesn't send Lenny any mixed signals. That's, that's not going to confuse the poor guy. So all the manly men go off to the brothel, and they leave Lenny and Candy behind with Crooks, a black ranch hand who is generally segregated from the rest of the ranch hands because he's black and it's the 30s. Lenny's sad because he misses George, and Crooks is like, yeah, maybe he'll never come back and leave you here forever, because Crooks is kind of a dick. He admits that loneliness and having to deal with racism have made him into a bitter man, and Lenny's like, hey, you and Candy should come join me and George on our magic dream farm, and the two men are, like, kind of into this sort of hopeful fantasy, and they're all bonding, and then Curly's wife comes in, and you know what? For fucking once, she's not looking for Curly. She just wants to pick on some easy targets. She says, oh, looks like they left all the weak ones here. Which, I mean, true, but also pretty mean. She calls Lenny a dum-dum, Crooks the N-word, and Candy a sheep. Okay, I'm not sure how that's an insult. She, she could have gone with, like, guy who's too big a weenie to shoot his own dog, but not sheep. Bah. Bah. Crooks quite rightly tells her to fuck off, and she threatens to have him lynched. What the fuck, Curly's wife? I was advocating for your personhood, Curly's wife. Why you gotta be awful like that? First wave feminism, you know? Oh, yeah. Sometime later, Lenny is alone in the barn petting puppies, which sounds like a euphemism. <laughs> but, uh, no, he's he's actually petting a puppy, and as you might have guessed, he pets it just a little too hard, and he kills it. Shocker. It's Not like Midas's touch, but <laughs> bad. <laughs> Midas's touch was also kind of bad. Yeah. Also, it's like the Green Mile, but bad. Actually, that that has a mouse in it. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I'll just say it here instead. I guess uh, Stephen King was obsessed with John Steinbeck, and every like half the things he's written is, uh, it, however you want to read them, is either homages to or ripoffs of Steinbeck elements, and that's yeah, but, but, one of them. But he made his guy big and black <laughs> and beautiful, and also not m- mentally disabled. <laughs> He's just a he's just a big magical. That's the way I they call it. I believe he was a little slow. He would maybe, but it was they they did the trope that they call it what the magical Negro trope, where he's just a magic black man who's there to solve everybody's problems and then die. He did. He created Tom Hanks a problem. Well, yeah, but he he took away Tom Hanks's like prostate cancer. <laughs> the Green Mile is a movie. <laughs> Dead man walking. So Lenny kills the puppy. And not wanting to get in trouble, he flings it across the barn. (laughs) It landed in New York City. Can we, like, not get the man, like, some soft cloth or something? We established in the beginning when he pets, you know, the lady's dress. It doesn't have to be a live thing. Just give him, like, a fucking, like, piece of felt and not have him inadvertently murder any more animals. And then, who comes into the barn? You got, like, a 50-50 chance on this one. Only two people be coming in and out of places. <laughs> Curly's dog. No, Curly doesn't have a dog. You want to give it one more go? Curly's bitch. Uh, it's Curly's wife, you fucking animal. Yeah, same thing. I'm not the animal. You're an animal. She doesn't even have a name. Yeah, I know. Thanks, John. She tells Lenny not to be sad about the dog because it was a mutt. Who gives a shit? 
Then she tells him that she could have been in pictures. She could have been a star. But instead, she's in a barn with a dead puppy and Lenny. So she lets Lenny stroke her hair for some reason. Like, she tacitly gives him permission, like, go ahead, you can touch my hair, despite clearly being aware that he pet a puppy to death. You do you, Curly's wife. So Lenny pets her, and oopsie-daisy manslaughter, he snaps her neck. Like, I don't even know how the mechanics of that would happen. Oh, like this. <laughs> ah! The show's finally better now. It's just RJ. And so, he kills Curly's wife. Curly finds out. This doesn't go well. He decides, oh, you remember that place? That's the trouble place where all I'm supposed right, to meet George? Right, I'm alive. It's a miracle. You're bad at this. <laughs> Yeah, R.I.P. Curly's wife. You had no name and no defining characteristics apart from being hot and a huge asshole. Having a twig neck. Yep, yeah, and having a really brittle neck. (laughs) So Curly's wife is a little too big for him to fling into a hay pile like a dead puppy. So instead, as you said, he books it out of there, heading to the I fucked up real bad spot that George picked out at the beginning of the story. The others... (laughs) The others find... City Slickers 2, <laughs> the body of Curly's wife. <laughs> That's the treasure. <laughs> it's the treasure, it's Curly's dead wife. <laughs> this episode is just chock full of jokes that, like, two people are gonna enjoy. No, Megan. <laughs> City Slickers 2 was huge. Yeah. I was alive. Okay. I saw it. All right. You had, Most of our listener base probably hasn't. You had Billy Crystal. Billy Crystal. <laughs> and others. Curly. Well, I don't know who that actor is. Curly. I, no, I believe Curly was dead in, by two. I believe he was alive in one and died in one. Okay. There, there's a lot that goes on in these movies. It sounds like it's a couple it. Of, it's a bunch of city slickers. See, they're from the Big Apple. And they decide, hey, we could take our uh, let's okay t- take our show on the road. You know, you know what this podcast isn't called? Oh no, City Slickers. Could be. <laughs> you could do your spinoff, uh, City Slickers podcast some other time. Don't you remember in the trailer, <laughs> Billy Crystal like r- runs along a cow or something? Something like that. I don't know. Because I believe that's his best friend. Okay. <laughs> well, they they find Curly's wife. Um, could you pet a cow to death? Could God make a cow even he couldn't pet to death? Um, Curly finds the body, and he's off to hunt down, torture, and eventually murder Lenny. And Slim is like, well, we don't want that, but we should turn Lenny into, you know, the police, because he did technically kill a person. But he and George know that Lenny isn't going to survive prison, so George sneakily cops one of the other ranchers' guns and heads out. At the bad boy place, Lenny is upset, and he knows he fucked up real good, and he has visions of being yelled at by his Aunt Clara and also a giant pissed-off rabbit. So that happens. George finally finds Lenny, and Lenny's kind of confused because George isn't pissed at him. Instead, he tells Lenny to look out at the water while he tells him about the dream farm and all the rabbits Lenny is going to lovingly pet to death, and then George shoots him in the back of the head. R.I.P. Lenny, you pet things real hard. Everybody thinks George wrestled the gun away from Lenny and shot him in self-defense and is like, good job, thumbs up. But Slim knows the truth and tells him not to feel shitty about it and that a guy got to sometimes. Well, everything's all right then. The end. 
Now, did Oni smell? If he smelled, it's okay, because then it's like a dog. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's totally cool to kill something if it smells. Yeah, did he shit his pants? Like, I'm totally, you oh, know. Okay, no, we're not doing that. <laughs> okay, incontinence is a real problem. Yeah. Uh, you get into some... I wear Depends for Men. That's fantastic. Why? <laughs> Sometimes you gotta shit. All right, now that you've made your poop joke, let's slide into the the sort of uncomfortable moral issues that this book presents. Like, hey, maybe it's cool sometimes to kill developmentally disabled people if it's for their own good. In this instance, you know, the choices, I guess, are slow, terrible death by Curly and life in prison, which is going to be very bad. So I guess mercy killing is, like, the least op- worst option here? Yeah, you could have blamed on the black guy. Wow, Okay. <laughs> There's always a third option. I mean, like, Lenny Lenny can't make this decision. Lenny can't consent to this. Lenny can't even successfully pet something without accidentally murdering it. Sounds like they should have done this a long time ago. Okay, wow, no. We are not advocating for the mercy killings of differently abled people. There's a murder spree going on. Yeah, he does kill a bunch of shit. But it's okay, because George needs him, so he lets him keep doing that. Until he finally kills a person, and George is like, Well, I guess I can't use you as my enabling device anymore. So, as to the inspiration for this this uh, book, the, this something that happened, Steinbeck, who, as you said, worked as a migrant farmer for a time, said the book was inspired by real people and events, kind of. In an interview with the New York Times in 1937, he dropped this little gem. I was a bindle stiff, which I guess means mi- migrant worker, farm worker, something. I guess so. Bindle stiff. <laughs> Myself for quite a spell. I worked in the same country that the story is laid in. The characters are composites to a certain extent. Lenny was a real person. He's in an insane asylum in California right now. I worked alongside him for many weeks. He didn't kill a girl. He killed a ranch foreman. Got sore because the boss had fired his pal and stuck a pitchfork right through his stomach. I hate to tell you how many times I saw him do it. We couldn't stop him until it was too late. Holy shit. Shit happened. Some, something happened. Something I happened. guess it wasn't anybody's fault. The novel was adapted for the stage in 1937 by Steinbeck, and it ran for over 200 performances. Also, an interesting thing of note was that Crooks was played by an actor named Lee Whipper, who was actually the first African-American member of the Actors' Equity Association. Uh, Maybe more surprising, or not, because this seems to weirdly happen kind of a lot, it was adapted into an opera. I just can't figure out... Why pet the rabbit? (laughs) Don't pet the rabbit! I can't figure out how some of these are adapted into opera form, especially this one has a very distinct style of speech because they're like rough farmhands and shit, and I feel like that would get lost in opera. And so before I actually went and Googled it, because of course I Googled it, I wrote this joke where I said, you know, can you even imagine Lenny busting out a fucking aria while he pets a dead mouse? But hey, guess what? He does. It's called Lenny's Aria. I didn't even realize that I was going to hit it on the nose that hard, but I did. Google it. There's clips. It's there. It was You 
think they put that on his gravestone? This is something I could stroke. <laughs> this is something I, I could bet. pet. The end. Lenny. Google it. It's a trip. Of Mice and Men was adapted into a movie in 1939, just two years after the book came out, and starred Burgess Meredith as George. And I realize this might be a deep pull, but literally the only things I know him from are he's the super horny grandpa from the two grumpy old men movies. And he's also... And I didn't know Rock. that. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. He's Mick, isn't he? Wow, really? Holy I shit! I thought that's what you were gonna say. No, I totally forgot that he was Mick, and that he gets that he gets pushed to death by Mister T. <laughs> he so, got yeah. pet too hard. Yeah, he, gets... he came full circle. Burgess <laughs> Meredith plays Mick in Rocky. He gets pet too hard by Mister T, and he dies. And that's not even a joke. That's the plot. And he's the horny grandpa and grumpy old men. And this was the thing that I didn't know. He's the dude from the Twilight Zone episode where he like loves to read and he's super yeah, stoked about the end of the break. world. Yeah, but then his glasses. Break. I didn't know that was Burgess Meredith. Yeah, you don't know anything. I don't know shit. Anyway, Lenny was played by Lon Chaney Jr., who's famous for his run in the Universal Monster movies in the 40s, playing, you know, different versions of Wolfman, Mummy, and Dracula, presumably once Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi didn't want to do that shit anymore. There's an Iranian uh, film version from 1972 called Tapuli, which is just the name of Lenny's character, which I mentioned just because I would not have expected that that there's an Iranian adaptation of, of Mice and Men. So that's a sort of trivia nugget you can just kind of hang on to there. Also, mm. you also left off, and I had to double check to make sure it was true. Burgess mm. Meredith was the original of the Penguin. Oh, shit. He was, wasn't he? He was. Man, Burgess Meredith. Yeah. Busy boy. So the biggest adaptation was in 1992, directed by... Whoa, Gary... whoa, 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 You're skipping over. Oh, because I'm going to get back to it because I'm going to make a joke. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, though. Yeah. Wait, what? Why are you doing a Darth Vader thing? George. I want to pet things. Oh, no. I pet too, I pet too hard. Pray that I do not pet it further. The Senate. <laughs> I'm sure people Never just, taught me. I just love listening to you breathe into that mic. How to revive things. <laughs> have, you, have you ever heard the tragedy of Darth Plagius the Wise? He I've could killed. not save the rabbits he pet. Or Padme. <laughs> no. Padme? I thought she said pet me. Did you not know? No. James Earl Jones was Lenny. <laughs> yes. A lot of weird actors have been Lenny, as we're going to talk about in a minute here. So there was Adaptation 1992, directed by Gary Sinise, also starring Gary Sinise as Gary Sinise, um, <laughs> as George, and John Malkovich as Lenny, which is weird. It's a pretty serviceable adaptation. It doesn't do anything interesting. It was positively received. We watched it in my ninth grade class, because that's all public school is, just reading books and then watching the movie version of the book. The play was revived on Broadway for a limited run in 2014, and I bring that up because James Franco played George, and Chris O'Dowd played Lenny. And if you're a nerd, you'll recognize that name, because Chris O'Dowd is Roy from the IT crowd, which is, again, just another very weird choice for Lenny. It's just, Lenny seems to have consistently had some fairly weird uh, casting, except in a TV movie from the 80s where he was played by Randy Quaid. That's some inspired casting right well, the, there. Well, the irony <laughs> is George was played by Beretta, who was a real-life murderer, 
Robert Wait, Blake. Yeah, Robert Blake. Yeah. He, he was Who the actually, star in Beretta. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, the people call him Beretta. Oh, I didn't know that. But yeah, he actually murdered his wife. So, yeah. The last thing isn't an adaptation, but it, it's sort of a, a reference that has permeated pop culture, or at least it used to. I don't know how much people are aware of it now, but in, in the bygone days, in the old Bugs Bunny cartoons, like the really old ones... There was this character, he was an abominable snowman, and he would show up and he would squeeze the crap out of Bugs Bunny and he would be like, I will love him and hug him and name him George in a voice that's clearly meant to be Lenny. Like, that's where we'd be like, which way did he go, George? Which way did he go? (laughs) I will love him. No, you gotta do do that. I will love him and name him George. (laughs) Tell me about the rabbits. (laughs) I find your lack of puppies disturbing. He pet the men, <laughs> just... the women, <laughs> and the children, too. Pet them all. He pet them all. I pet they were like animals, and I pet them like animals. To death. This is a weird episode. And that, that takes us to... <laughs> that takes us to what? That takes us to this. Um, hey, RJ. What's up? Of mice and men. <laughs> You're just giggling. Yep. Good, bad, pettable. I got sunshine in my pocket <laughs> and it's because of mice and men. <laughs> it's such a downer. So I need that Coke. <laughs> it makes me so sad. I really need to do some bumps. I'm sorry, wait, where does cocaine <laughs> figure into things? The sunshine is, man. That song is from the Trolls movie. It's a Justin Timberlake song from the fucking animated Trolls movie. What is wrong with you? Megan, do you really think that movie's about trolls? There's no such thing as trolls. They got high as shit. Cocaine doesn't make you hallucinate trolls. As far as I know. But it makes you dance around like you got sunshine in, in your my, pocket. Yeah. Like, yeah. like you got this feeling in your body. Y- yeah, the cocaine. Don't stop, don't stop the cocaine feeling. Do you, do, <laughs> is this book a hallmark of American literature or isn't it? It is. Okay. That's why it makes me sad. Old George had to take old Lenny out. Dirty. <laughs> but needed. Necessary, perhaps. Something happened. Something happened. Can't blame anybody, I apparently. Guess, <laughs> apparently. Kind of everybody's fault, but nobody's fault at the same time. Super convenient that way. Yep. I say two strokes in my pocket out of two. Two out of two? (laughs) Two out of two. Great. Hey, Megan. Yeah, RJ. (sighs) What do you make? This is the the opposite of ASR. Of the movie. (laughs) The movie? How do I feel about the movie? The novella. (laughs) I don't think he's all that great. Whoa. I know. Here's the my, Schwartz was not with it? Here's my here's my hot, scorching take. Yeah, I, I, I guess the depression was bad, and sometimes you had to do shitty things, and I guess the true meaning of friendship is shooting your friend in the head when you got no other options. I don't... I mean, it's fine, I guess, but just doesn't doesn't say anything terrifically profound to me, except, like, times was hard... And sometimes you shoot your differently abled friend in the head after he accidentally snaps a woman's neck. 
and uh, kills uh, an assortment of animals, yeah, touches well, people inappropriately. Well, it, it perpetuates this weird thing of, like, the giant, super strong, doesn't understand how strong he is, hurts everybody, like, mentally handicapped person. Oh, Wreck-It Ralph. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm gonna wreck it. You think he said that before he snapped? Yes, he said, I'm gonna wreck it. Fuck me. Um, <laughs> I don't think you want Wreck It Ralph to fuck you. No, I don't. Uh, so, yeah, no, that's that's my, my hot, hot, hot take. And that'll about do it for us on this episode of Oh No Lit Class. If you want to help us get our magic farm where we can murder love all the rabbits we could ever want, uh, subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us reviews and chair noises. And on this week's Pod Pals, and yeah, no, we totally, totally forgot to do it last week because we're terrible, but this week I just want to mention Frank Burton and his show Ragbag Podcast, which is kind of one part comedy, two parts kind of awesome DJ music hour, and just all parts a little bit strange, but in a good way, and in a way that you're, that, you know, you're down with, and you're like, all right, tell me more, Frank. Ragbag is a fortnightly music podcast presented by me, Frank Burton. I play stuff like this. I mean, is this eclectic enough for you yet? What more do you want? I also tell strange stories and engage in some quality listener interaction, although it has to be said most of my listeners are not the greatest calibre of person. I'm only being honest. I'm just hoping someone intelligent is actually listening to this promo. Please, help me out here, guys. Download Ragbag from SoundCloud, iTunes or Stitcher with more information at frankburson.co.uk. You can like us on Facebook, and you can join our Facebook group. It's it's finally getting pretty popping in there. It's good. RJ's in there now. I don't know if that is an incentive or a deterrent to you. It's an incentive for me, <laughs> RJ. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at, uh, at OnoLitClassPod, or you could take part in one of your fucking polls at, uh, at RJ underscore OnoLitClass. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yes, I remember your Twitter handle. You don't. I don't know why I put the underscore in there. I don't know why you did either. Uh, we're on Tumblr at uh, onolitclass.tumblr.com. We're trying to do the Tumblr thing again. We're just doing whatever. We're on the Braintrust Network at braintrust.fm, along with some other super dope shows, like There Might Be Cupcakes, The Wallflies, um, Life, Death, and Taxonomy, and Play Comics. Just good, good times. Down at the Brain Farm. Oh god, this has just completely gone to hell. You could pledge to our Patreon. I guess I already said that too, but you can get... To vote on episodes, get stickers, posters, shirts. We write you a letter and we draw penises on it. It's it's a whole deal. We're, we become best friends, essentially. Yeah, our next episode will be on June 6th. Until then, I'm Megan. Me amo, RJ. We, we love you. Bye. Hello and welcome to Ono oh Lit Clap. <laughs> oh God! Oh yeah! Off to a good start. Remember, man. it's tilted. You forget. <laughs> you learned that not that long ago. Oh.
This podcast is brought to you in part by the Brain Trust Brothers Network. For more information about this podcast or others, visit braintrustbros.com.